Choosing a medical specialty, an inevitable part of any medic's journey, but are we really prepared to make that decision? Hi, I'm Chantal Corbin, and this is A Doctor's Insight, the space where healthcare professionals give us the inside scoop on their journey to becoming a specialist doctor. With transparency and truth, you'll hear about their professional experiences, personal sacrifices, and work-life balance. A Doctor's Insight, medical students and foundation doctors, this one's for you. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of A Doctor's Insight. We are glad that you chose to listen to us today. It's all about gastroenterology and hepatology with Dr. Dai Samuel. So Dr. Dai is a consultant hepatologist at the Royal Glamorgan Hospital in Lanchazant, where he's clinical lead for gastroenterology and has recently become clinical director of pathology for Comtaf Health Board. He trained at Cardiff University and completed all of his training in Wales. He's a rugby fanatic and has a season ticket with Gloucester Rugby. He also loves cricket, singing and tweeting. A fun fact about him was that when he was in sixth form, he was in three Welsh teams slash societies. He was captain in the Welsh disabled cricket team, signing in the National Youth Orchestra, of Wales and debating in the Welsh Debating Society National Squad. So let's have a chat with Dr. Dai. So I just want to begin by asking you to tell me a bit about your specialty, gastroenterology. Thanks and thank you for having me uh, on this podcast. So yes, gastroenterology and hepatology, which is what I mainly specialise in, is a very diverse specialty. It deals with uh, many conditions of the GI tract from mouth to uh, rectum, uh, both acute and chronic conditions, uh, and also in my in my area of expertise, looking at particularly patients with uh, cirrhosis, uh, acute liver failure, and issues affecting the biliary tree and the pancreas. So it's it's very much a, a broad church, uh, and very much a, a, a diverse, especially with many opportunities to subspecialize in in several different areas. Okay, so why did you choose to um, subspecialize in hepatology? Excellent question. So I, <laughs> I think um, I come from Merthyr Tydfil in South Wales. Um, I've lived in Merthyr all my life uh, and still live there now. Um, and I saw from a very early age, both as a, a student, but even growing up before then, uh, the impact that hepatological conditions and particularly alcohol uh, has had on our population. Uh, but more recently, probably fatty liver disease as well and obesity. Uh, but I think the main reason I love it is that the patients are superb. They are some of the most down to earth, fantastic individuals in terms of personalities. Um, they're very interesting personalities very often with very colourful and, and sometimes very sad uh, backgrounds and paths. Um, and I think standing up for those who are perhaps misjudged or persecuted and judged by even healthcare professionals because of their lifestyle, I think it's important for us as healthcare professionals to do that because I can see them on the other side when they come through quite difficult adversaries and and become very fruitful, productive members of society. That's amazing. Um, And it's sad to hear that sometimes they feel quite judged by other healthcare professionals because that shouldn't be the case. No, I I think it's a difficult one. And I think we all have our subconscious bias. when I was in med- medical school far too many years ago now, I, I went to medical school in uh, 2003, so my, my 20th anniversary wow. this summer. Um, 
I was one of five, which was very unusual at that point to come from Merthyr. Uh, but they, they were often barbed jokes or comments about the valleys in Merthyr Tidville, which probably wouldn't be accepted in today's medical school, I hope. Um, but there was definitely that stigma and, and prejudgment. And even today, I sometimes have that battle with colleagues who even think that liver disease is only caused by one thing, uh, and that is alcohol. And that is far from the truth. So I think it's it's down to people like myself who live in places that are judged, but also deal with patients who are judged every day to really stand up and and shout for those patients. And also for my specialty, who, who, who are often overlooked by perhaps some of the, the more glamorous, sexier specialties, such as cardiology and, and some of the cancers even, who have a lot more spotlight on them because of high profile personalities than some of the the less well-known people who have liver disease. So what do you think um, can be done a bit more to help spread the word about liver disease and the different causes of it? Because I'm sure most people might hear liver disease and think it's only caused by um, alcohol misuse, but that's not only the case. So what can we do about that? Yeah, I think a lot is being done. Um, I hope as hepatologists in particular, we're a very friendly bunch. Um, in Wales in particular, we work very closely together and we're all very close friends. Liver disease for many years has perhaps been on the back burner of perhaps government agendas. Uh, if you look at medical school curriculums, it features very likely in the curriculum, despite mortality, liver disease incidents, et cetera, going up and up and up. And certainly deaths from liver disease is now the only group of conditions going up in terms of mortality every other condition is coming down and we, we don't hear that on the news very often so i think the first thing to do is raise awareness from day one of medical school but also in the community let's educate our populations in our communities which lots of us live in about the many risk factors for liver disease i am here probably twice three times every clinic every week patients coming into my clinic with a new diagnosis saying but i don't drink doctor because that's what they think causes liver disease and cirrhosis and the media have a part to play in that and certainly the the perhaps more right wing media, the Daily Mail and, and perhaps the, the head, the red top tabloids such as the Sun have perhaps used George Best as an example of a typical stereotypical liver disease patient. Uh, so I think they have a role to play. Um, I think governments have a role to increase the funding for awareness of liver disease. Uh, and we as healthcare professionals probably need to advocate and push our charities a lot more. Um, I work very closely with the British Liver Trust, which is one fantastic charity, but compared to things like the British Heart Foundation, for instance, a very small charity with very limited resources. Um, and they do a fantastic job of spreading education and awareness within the communities. But there's so much more that we can do, I think, as physicians, clinicians of the future and educators uh, in terms of educating our, our friends, families and wider communities. So it's definitely about spreading the word and just getting that information out to the public. Yeah, and I think as hepatologists making our, our specialty interesting. Um, yeah. I hope that students who come on my wardrobes and, and placements enjoy themselves and and perhaps see the, the, the two sides of me. I, I can be very straight and dour-faced when I need to be, but I, I hope that I'm very lucky in having insight into some of my patients' backgrounds and being able to speak uh, rather bluntly at times, uh, but also empathise with them. And I think if we make our specialty exciting, uh, hopefully people will want to become hepatologists because it's, it's the best decision that I ever made. Well, I can say that the students who have been on your ward round definitely do like you. That's how I heard about you in the first place. 
Do you need? Yes. <laughs> so um, what is your favourite part about the specialty? I think it's the diversity. Um, I, I'm very lucky that despite working in the District General Hospital, albeit a very busy one in the Royal Glamorgan, I've been lucky enough to essentially niche myself purely within hepatobiliary and pancreatic medicine. Uh, but even within that, if we just take this week, um, yesterday morning I was performing an endoscopy list looking for varices, so abnormal veins, uh, banding them and treating them before they bleed. Uh, lunchtime, I had several ambulatory reviews with people who probably should still be in hospital, but we're very lucky we've got an ambulatory unit. We can pe keep people out of hospital or discharge them very early after they've been in acutely unwell. In the afternoon, I was doing three ERCPs, so I advanced endoscopy doing stent work and removing stones. Uh, last night, not so fortunately, I was in theatre in the glam till one o'clock in the morning dealing with a, a big GI bleed. Um, and then this morning, I was in a tertiary clinic in the Heath, uh, which I'm very fortunate to be allowed to be part of, looking at liver cancer uh, patients before going back to the glam to deal with some alcoholic hepatitis patients and then do more ERCPs. So I think every day is different. Uh, I think the groups that we deal with are very diverse. Uh, we have the affluent patients, perhaps, who have autoimmune diseases or, or fatty liver. We have the stereotypical alcohol-related liver disease patients who have very interesting backgrounds that you can make such a difference for. And then you have those on the margins of society, uh, those who are using drugs and they don't use drugs because they enjoy using drugs. They use them because their lives from before they were born were past a very bad day. And I think that far too many of us have had probably very privileged backgrounds and, and growing up in relative comfort that we don't actually appreciate the trauma and the harm that they've gone through. Um, so I think those are some of the fantastic things I, I get to enjoy. Uh, and I think I've mentioned it already, we're, we're such a small community compared to other specialties that um, I, I can pick up the phone, text or tweet to my friends in Birmingham in a tertiary unit. Uh, I go up to visit the transplant unit regularly every few months. Uh, and I've got a, a rapport with those that I could only dream of in other specialties such as cardiology, neurosurgery, etc. So I, we're very lucky that there's no real hierarchy in hepatology. We're all just friends trying our best to make our patients' lives better and to get them through transplant, liver disease and beyond. It's interesting that you talked about the diversity because I always used to think that if you subspecialised, there wouldn't be that much diversity. But now that you talk about all the common presentations and the procedures that you have to do, I think it's quite interesting to hear. Yeah, and I think more and more now, I think in Wales, we are punching above our weight in terms of doing a lot more than you would expect in certainly the smaller hospitals in, in England. Um, but we've got other procedures. We've got procedures such as TIPS, which is a, a stent that you put in someone's liver to reduce the pressure. So we're developing a network in Wales to do that. We've just launched our first virtual autoimmune disease clinic where we share interesting cases. We've got an all Wales EBC clinic now, which is a virtual clinic where we discuss a, a special type of autoimmune disease and a special type of medication. And again, that's that's all done online. Um, and even locally, we've got a benign MDT that I've set up every two weeks where we discuss interesting cases. We biopsy people. We discuss patients who need transplant. So, yeah, even within hepatology, you can pick a very niche aspect depending on where you want to work. And, and either spend all of your time looking at that or having a very interesting 
week weekend and an eight day week in my case because I, I don't sleep much I'm a bit like Margaret Thatcher when she was prime minister I, I live on three or four hours sleep uh but it but it's very rewarding uh, and as I say you you can make such a big difference to these people's lives because they they've been ve- given very little until now and, and even giving them just respect and a bit of time can turn their lives around it sounds like there's so much to like about hepatology but what if I ask this question what is your least favourite part, if anything, about it? Yeah, you know, I, I think part of it is the sadness of dealing with people who are beyond help. Um, I think some of my patients, despite my best efforts, my team's best efforts, they can never give up drinking or they won't engage in viral hepatitis treatments, despite being very e- easy to treat now. And, and some of that is is, is historical fear, stigma, societal beliefs within their very inert communities. So I think that's the first thing. I think as a specialty that is still young within gastroenterology, we, we are still punching above our weight without enough resource. And I think everyone could argue that in the NHS. We would have to look at the junior doctor strikes in England this week to say we haven't got enough doctors. We certainly haven't got enough hepatologists and certainly in Wales we haven't. Um, and getting that awareness about liver disease. Um, it's amazing when I speak to even my clinical colleagues and managerial colleagues and even politicians, there isn't perhaps the awareness of how big a problem liver disease is. Um, and even within my gastroenterologists' uh, colleagues, there is still quite a fatalistic approach to the specialty um, that once you have cirrhosis and decompensate, you you are going to die. Um, I hope I'm not that bad at my job uh, and I can hopefully put some people back back on the bike and, and back on their perch again. But I think those are two of the big challenges. Um, and I think the third is probably quite, it's it's quite a disparate, especially in it, it's hard work. Um, and it, it's despite the enjoyment I get out of it, it is quite demoralising and, and it's very traumatising at times. Um, we're a very small team in CTM in particular, but every patient death that we have, be it on the transplant list or when someone bleeds out in theatre, um, I see them as an extended part of my family. You get to know their families very closely. Um, and very often you're dealing with a lot younger patient cohorts than perhaps COPD and, and heart disease. So having to tell 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds that they're dying or their families that they've died, um, that is tough. Uh, and even if we come across as quite tough, happy-go-lucky, bravado, be it even mad people like myself or more drums uh deep down it, it, I, I take that home and that, and that's very tough to deal with at times and and you have to develop a coping strategy for that which sometimes involves just going to the pub actually ironically um but i think again it comes back to the community spirit that we have in hepatology and within my team certainly that we know when we're struggling uh, and we help each other through that most of the doctors I spoke to previously also talked about teamwork and talking to colleagues when you're struggling. So that seems to be a consensus amongst every specialty, really. Yeah, I think, look, the, we use lots of buzzwords about well-being and, and, and mindfulness and all that. But I, yeah, I think, look, we've gone away, hopefully, in medicine in general from the hierarchical, nasty consultant, junior doctor being shouted at world. Um in my other world, I'm a foundation programme director uh, at the moment in the GLAM, so I have to nurture up to 60 junior doctors who will hopefully be my colleagues in the future. Um, 
but I think in, in especially like hepatology in particular, um, I, I don't think you can teach the skills that you need to actually manage that and to support each other. And, and like I say, our, our teams are so small. I'm ironically, my, my wife is a specialist nurse in hepatology. So I, I, I never get to leave hepatology because she's my boss in work and out of work. Um, and we met on a hepatology ward. But I think it's having those very small niche teams that know each other by first name. Even my juniors, they don't call me Dr. Samuel and die because you need that rapport with them. Because if I'm feeling the strain of seeing 40 year olds die of variceal bleeds after 14 years as a, as a doctor, um, what are they feeling after perhaps three days in the job? or 18 months as a doctor. So I think that's the important thing. That I think that's the lesson for life really in medicine is remember that however bad you feel, the ones below you in terms of experience will be feeling even worse. Um, and that's what I hope I try to instill in my work, be it gastro, medicine, hepatology, or just life in general. Really. I really admire that relationship that you build with junior doctors. And I can only hope that most junior doctors, whether they be in England or Wales, experience a consultant or a senior who's able to build that rapport and take care of them like that. Yeah, I, I don't pretend I'm special in any way. I, I think I'm hopefully the first of a younger generation of consultants um, who has grown up surrounded actually mainly by friends who are now consultant colleagues. Um, so in the Royal Glamorgan in particular, three of my consultant colleagues, we were all registrars on the same rotation together in the same year. Um, so we know each other reg registrars. Wales is a, a pretty unique place in keeping most of its trainees and re retaining them. And the GLAM is a very good example of that. Most people go there as an F1 or an F2, an SHO reg or, or a fellow tend to return there. The same with Prince Charles in Merthyr, where, where I I live. So I think that's the importance is, is actually just breaking down those barriers. Yes, there are times when I can be Dr. Samuel and I need to be called that. Um, there are times when I need to say I'm Dr. Samuel because most of my juniors are six foot and I'm five foot two. And the, consult and the patients think that I'm the junior doctor and my F2 is my consultant. But on a serious note, I think, look, it's important. Look, in other walks of life, you don't have that hierarchy. I think days of of being a nasty consultant who thinks they're God um, or a goddess has gone, hopefully, uh, because at the end of the day, this is a this is a really tough job. Uh, and if we hang on our own backs, then the public are not going to have our backs, trust me. So I think, yeah, I, I hope I'm an approachable consultant who gets what it's like to be a junior doctor as well. Because I remember those nights where you didn't get any food or chance for sleep or you went for five days worrying about tests and I'm hopefully I'm not too old in the trust after being qualified for five years as a consultant to remember what it's like to have to get tabs and mini caxes and portfolios. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's mini caxes. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and besides the change in dynamic of junior doctors and consultant relationships, how would you say that your specialty has evolved from when you first started until now? I think hepatology was just part of gastroenterology when I was an F1. Um, there wasn't a subspecialty, there weren't fellowships. Um, in Merthyr, my, my first ever job medically was on a gastro ward. And out of, at that time, sadly, 45, 50 patients, that was a hard job. Uh, why I became a gastroenterologist, I don't understand, because it was a horrendous rotation. Um, most of those were liver disease patients. So I saw from the start of my career that this was something that was going to explode. Um, I think in terms of 
advances probably we're probably one of the most advanced specialties in terms of going from people dying of liver failure and hepatitis is a great example in the 80s we just had the hepatitis c scandal inquiry everyone died of hepatitis c we had drugs that were totally intolerable whereas now we have drugs that cure hepatitis c in everyone essentially in eight weeks without any side effects now if you told me that even as a student that would have been amazing um we're aiming to eradicate hepatitis c worldwide by 2030 the pandemic has hit that but it's not beyond possibility we're now transplanting patients like never before we're curing people of liver cancer which used to be a death sentence we've developed immunotherapies that we used for melanomas and lung cancers and we're now being recognized as hepatologists that deserve their own time to serve their own patients so i think if it's anything like i've experienced in my first 14 years as a doctor by the time i retire um which may be sooner than later if the pension debacle carries on I can't imagine what hepatology will be like. And, and I think I'm probably unofficially one of the first hepatobiliary pancreatic doctors now, in that I also do ERCPs. I look after the uh, chronic pancreatitis patients, which is a whole new scope again. Uh, and we are now being recognised as people who need to do this job day in, day out, and not just do it as something as an add-on, which was a tradition years ago. Most of gastroenterology was bowel disease, bowel cancer, polyps, IBD, reflex etc and, and liver was just something you did now liver is something i only do uh, and i leave bowels and other things to people who are very good at that because i'm not very good at brown brown stuff i'm very much better at yellow stuff and red stuff so hepatology as a subspecialty is definitely becoming more recognized and that's going in the right direction yeah and for, and for you guys coming through the ranks for the first time next year hepatology will essentially be recognised as a specialty in its own right. So once you've gone through your core training or IMT as it is now, um, you will very early on branch off into either hepatology or IBD. You will still, most of you will work as DGH budding consultants like myself, um, but it won't be that only those who get fellowships and go into tertiary centres that do hepatology. There is a recognition now that we need a 50-50 split. Um, so hopefully 50% of those going into GI will go on to be hepatologists and that will allow our, our departments to flourish however small we are really. And for those students or junior doctors who are thinking about going into hepatology do you have any resources that you can recommend they look into? Um, I can certainly recommend contacting me. Uh, if <laughs> okay. uh, no I think within Wales we have especially and even without Wales we have a, a large network of hepatologists who are very willing to support projects, virtual QI projects, etc. Um, the British Liver Society Trust, Basel, um, is a fantastic society. It's a very small society. Lots of online resources to give you insights into the specialty, into the subspecialties. Uh, lots of courses that are either free or very, very cheap. I think student membership is free or £10. Junior doctors is something like £30. Um, and the conference is absolutely superb. The BSG, the British Society of Gastroenterology, have some very good resources as well. Um, but it's just making those links with local hepatologists and, and getting some experience. Go on taste the week as an F1. Uh, try and arrange some, even if it's in your own time. Come and come and see some more tertiary clinics or go to go to Birmingham. Contact the Birmingham team. Um, I'm happy to give some contacts for that because they're 
they're very happy to welcome some random doctor from South Wales. So I'm sure they'd be very welcome, happy to welcome budding students and junior doctors from, from anywhere across the UK. But we are that type, especially that we're very willing to nurture talent and provide projects. And, and there's so much going on in hepatology. There are so many studies, KY projects, audits, etc. that it's very easy to become involved, both for your CV, because that's very important. It's ticking the box, but hopefully very much nurturing colleagues for the future. So just dive right in is what I'm getting from this. Contact Something people and yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I know you spoke about this briefly towards the beginning, but how exactly did you arrive at being a hepatologist? Like, was there any other specialty that you were interested in or was it just just that? Yeah, so um, I only ever wanted to be a doctor. Um, I think my mum and dad said when I was age three, I used to watch casually. I still do now. I criticise it and get the diagnosis in equal measures. But I was born with a disability. Um, I've got um, what we call hemiamelia, so three toes, half an ankle, an absent fibula, half a knee, a few inches shorter than the other one. Um, and that's what stimulated me into medicine. Because when I was born, uh, my mum and dad were told I, I might never walk. Um, I was then provided with a fantastic, which is now prehistoric, orthotic device to allow me to walk. I carried on playing rugby, cricket, any sport I could to a very high level, but that's what stimulated me into medicine. So I always wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And then I did the placement with a very good friend of mine now, uh, Mr. Roy in the Royal Glamorgan, who was a fantastic rugby player, and I hated it. Um, it was so boring. It was just bashing knees and hips. And and then I did an F2 placement, and I definitely knew I didn't want to do that. Um, I was thinking of palliative care because of the the difference you can make to someone's life. And I think that's probably where hepatology came into that, is that it was so diverse, dealing with both heroes saving lives with varicele bleeds, but lots of people who were never going to make it. Um, but it came back then to that holistic approach, that diverse population. And probably the thing that sealed it for me was um, I, I went back to a gastroenterology in Prince Charles as an SCT2. I was very lucky at that time to have passed my membership. So I acted up as a reg for a year. Um, and during that time, I met my wife because she was a nurse on the ward uh, and my father-in-law, who sadly passed away, who had alcoholic liver disease. Um, and the first time I met him, I put a drain in him. Um, he was one of the few who I made abstinent, ironically. Um, but, but it's from that that I could see the massive input that I could have in my local community. And you can't get much closer than your father-in-law, who became one of my best friends. Um, uh, and again, it's that diversity. These patients are so much undervalued misjudged uh, and you only have to give them a chance and and i can just quote a, f a few projects my a few months back we went to the park prison in bridgend and we offered hepatitis screening to all inmates that's the second largest prison in europe and we screened almost 1200 inmates and by wow. the spring we will eradicate hepatitis c hopefully um all we did was give them a mars bar and a toothbrush and that's probably the first time those people or most of those people in there have ever had anyone show them any respect and value um, and, and because of that we'll change their lives and hopefully stop cirrhosis. Uh, I'm also a, a trustee in a local charity and, and clinic called Brinawell which is on our doorstep in Shanghari um, and they rehabilitate and rehab patients with alcoholic related brain diseases, uh, severe addiction etc and we've already had uh, 20 people this year who've gone back into work back into society, back into marriage, and have got their family back. 
Um, and that's why I, I, I'm a hepatologist is because these people have lives that they can fulfill. They mm. cost us a lot of money when they're not in work, but they can provide a hell of a lot of good to our world at a time when we're, we're really lacking in that. So that's probably why I've gone down that route, because I just love the patient that I interact with. I can tell that patient interaction is really important to you. Um, and I think it's interesting because a lot of the times we can become a bit overwhelmed or too focused on the medicine only and forget the patient at the center of it. Um, and I really like when you talked about the prison project and it's quite sad that it was only your project that showed them an ounce of respect. Um, but it's also good that you were able to do that for them. Yeah, and to be yeah. very blunt, when I go into Park Prison, um, I know some of those inmates because they're from my town, they're from my village. They were they were in school with me, uh, and I'm just very fortunate that I I come from a very one of the poorest places in Europe. My mom and dad were very supportive and fortunately had good jobs, and I went down the right path. I was supported despite my adversities. Um, how many of those in Park Prison could have been doctors, solicitors? ambulance drivers etc if they'd had the right opportunities in life and and that's what I hopefully strive for every day is when I go to work is I try to make someone's life better and try to make it a bit more like myself uh, because I know that I'm very privileged actually coming from Bertha to have got where I have uh, and many could have done far better than me if only they'd had that little bit of support inspiration respect or just a loving mom or dad. Well it sounds like you're definitely making a difference and um, for those who are thinking about it more seriously, can you tell us a bit about what the training pathway is like? Well, that's a very good question because it's changing all the time. So, okay. um, um, so we've recently, you probably most of you will have heard of the shape of training, uh, which has shortened the, the specialist training from five years to four. Um, but essentially, the training will now include. Um, certainly in the first one or two years, um, getting competent in upper GI endoscopies, so learning diagnostic endoscopies into the stomach, and then going on to manage ulcer bleeds, varices, taking polyps off, etc. With the new curriculum, you will then decide if you like bowels or liver in general, and then start training in either of those. But in general, you'll do a lot of general gastroenterology clinics in the first few years of the reg. Uh, so that's seeing things like reflex, IBS, functional disorders, basic IBD, basic liver disease. Uh, but then you can subspecialize off very early on. Um, and throughout your training, you get a mix of very practical stuff. So endoscopies, advanced lower endoscopies, if you want to take polyps off, uh, being a bowel screener, being an ERCPS, being a, a stenter. I do esophageal stenting in my other little life as well. Um, doing drains of getting rid of fluid from people's stomachs, uh, running ambulatory units, running acute clinics for hot clinics. So it, it's so diverse that you'll see the whole array of, of disorders throughout your training. And the one thing that hepatology and gastroenterology do particularly well is you'll be embedded in very high specialist tertiary units, but a lot of your time will be in district generals doing the bread and butter. So you'll see this diverse array of pathology certainly in Wales, very advanced pathology. Um, sadly, our populations don't present very early. So if you want to come and work in Wales, you will see a hell of a lot of stuff that people in the affluent southeast, for instance, will only have seen in textbooks. 
because uh, we don't see TB, we don't see some of the random infections we see anymore. But in, in South Wales, you see that most weeks on the acute take. So so that's what you'll get. Um, and as well as that, it's a very hot, very hot bed for research, uh, QI in, uh, involvement as well, networking as well. So we've now set up networks right across Wales and across the UK. So you can get involved in large um, scale projects and even basic science projects right from the office of registrar um, and hopefully then become consultants fully fledged and then develop and evolve our services essentially. So you can dabble in a bit of everything really so clinical practice, research, yeah that's good. Yeah I think that's that's the beauty of medicine in general. Um, we're getting better at that compared to surgical specialties but I think in hepatology and even luminal gastroenterology, it, it lends itself so nicely to a, a very nice mix of very practical, very clinical, but also very academic and research aspects of your of your job plan. Uh, and as I say, I, I've got a bit of everything at the moment. Um, I'm potentially going to become a clinical director in a few weeks time to pathology, Ooh, which exciting. is totally to my, my remit. I'd be charging, in charge of microbiology and pathology and virology but um, wow. that's how diverse it can become in that you can be doing so many different branches to keep your, your job fresh and I mentioned earlier on about doing a clinic in the Heath today at our tertiary unit although I'm only a district general hospital consultant I'm very lucky to be able to go into a, a regional tertiary unit and provide a high specialist tertiary niche clinic once a week with some of my colleagues so yeah it's it's really diverse and, and every day is very very different. Well, congratulations in advance, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, and can you tell me a bit about the not only professional, but some of the personal sacrifices that you have to make when thinking about pursuing this specialty? Because I know today many junior doctors are considering work-life balance a lot more than doctors would have considered in the past. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and one that I probably have got good insight into. So um. When I first started my training, I was single, uh, partly because of my disability, never thought I'd meet anyone really. I had a, quite a big issue in terms of confidence. I, I was anorexic in medical school, somehow got through medical school. So I always thought I would just be work, work, work. And then I met Rebecca, my wife, uh, that changed things rather rapidly. Um, but we didn't have children at that point, obviously. Um, so I started my registrar training. I did a leadership fellowship. So it was across Wales and away in America a little bit. Um, but then we had my first daughter, Isla. Um, since then, I've had four children. Um, so I would have probably gone to Birmingham to train as a fellow there and probably work there. Um, they, they tried to post me food and I said no so far. Um, I, I would have probably moved wherever I wanted to work. Um, but very quickly, it became apparent I was going to stay in Wales, uh, which is fine. Um, I then went and did a fellowship in Newport in the Royal Gwent, in the Gwent Liver Unit, um, and subsequently took on my first, first consultant post there in 2018. Uh, but that was quite hard. It was an hour and a half travel each way. Um, it was early starts, late finishes, etc. Um, so I made a difficult, a difficult but easy decision in many ways to quit a bigger pond for a smaller pond where I don't want to be a big fish, but I've been allowed to flourish and become a big fish in a very what was a very small pond but actually ironically now that the royal glam and prince charles in particular are, are respected amongst the biggest units in the uk when it comes to hepatology that we punch above our weight so um yeah i, I would say that what it, 
don't think that you have to work in a massive unit to be a, a good doctor, number one. Okay, because some of the best doctors sacrifice everything because they are good doctors and they're not just people who are out to make an, a, a career for themselves. Um, but even if because of personal circumstances, health circumstances, whatever, you can't work in the centre that is seen as the biggest one, you will achieve just as much in a small centre. And I think the biggest thing I've learned is that um, if you're not there today, there'll be someone there tomorrow. Um, and put yourself first, your family even before that, and your job second, third, or even fourth. Uh, because when you're dead, they'll find another Dr. Samuel. Um, when you're dead, your family won't have you anymore. And those are the two things that I'm hopefully embarrassing just about. I'm a bit of a nutter in that I take on far too much. Um, but last week I was in Peppa Pig world, so I do spend time with my children and I do really enjoy Peppa Pig playing on Autoloop for hours. So yeah, so it's that balance. Yeah, you 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 work hard, you play hard, which medics do in general. I think in Cardiff Meds, when I was there in the rugby team, we did that in abundance. Hepatologists are known to play very hard, work as hard as they need to. Uh, but at the end of the day, work is work, life is life, and just do what you need to do when you need to. Uh, and like last night, I was in work till one o'clock, back up at six this morning. But tonight after this, I'm going to be building my home alone house with my little boy in terms of Lego. So you've got to have that balance and remember that it's just a job. And that's why I say call me Darling or Dr. Samuel. Um, Dr. Samuel is just a title of what I do. Um, Di is what my name is. And hopefully everyone knows me as Di. The Di was hopefully a tiny doctor. I'm so glad that you talked about prioritising because we can become so focused or even um, disillusioned by accolades and awards and working in the big tertiary centres when really that's not what's the most important. Well, to some people it would be, but to others, not really. Yeah, look, and, and sadly, and I've seen this, my own staff grade registrar, um, De Luca, he is one of the best doctors I have ever worked with. Um, he failed to get a training number three three times because he wasn't even shortlisted because he didn't tick those boxes. He didn't get the the national conference. He didn't get the national paper or the pub. No, he didn't because he was working really hard and he was saving lives. And I think that's the other thing is don't just think about medicine as a training pathway. It's okay to be a non-training doctor. It's okay to be less than full time. It's okay to be part time. It's okay to just say I I just want to work in a a small place with good friends that just do basics really well. And I think that's the thing. And I think I was very lucky that I got through my anorexia in particular, um, partly because of my obsession for work, which wasn't a good thing, but it got me through it. Uh, ironically, I was I was a terror anorexic because I put on weight, uh, but it, it drove me to lose a lot of things. And I think that's what's taught me actually you need to appreciate the good things in life in that your family, your friends and, and and your really loved ones, you can't get back. You can always get a job somewhere else. Um, so that's the biggest message I say is just enjoy life, enjoy your job, because we've got a really good job, despite the rubbish that's going on, despite the terrible pay, despite the media and the, and the politicians saying that we're horrible people because we bother to take a holiday. No, 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 we're really good people who do really good, important things every day. And I think we need to remember that whilst also remembering that we need to be humble uh, and we're in a very privileged position and half of my friends would probably give anything to be a doctor 
we were gifted with our brains, intelligence, and sometimes common sense, and just use that to do the best in work. Once you leave work, leave the doctor badge behind and become your normal person again. And we haven't even reached, well, we're about to reach the advice portion to close the podcast, but I feel like I've just been taking notes as I have gone on because you've been giving so much advice as you answer these questions. Um, But I'll still ask them. And if there's anything you'd like to add, just feel free. So what advice would you give to medical students or even doctors who feel overwhelmed at the prospect of their future career? Yeah, I think it's difficult. I think the the NHS is, a, is at a crossroads. I think your your careers are safe. Uh, we don't know what they will be like in the future. Um, I think the, the days of being very much um, an affluent member of society are gone. I think this is very much a vocation now because you do medicine because you love it. But I think it is still, still one of the most rewarding jobs you can ever have speaking to other colleagues and friends in other high paid, high valued professions. I think the second is remember who you are. That's what I always joke about is that if you CT'd me, you'd have Murtha and Kumtar Morgana written around me because I remember where I'm from and I never hopefully forget who I am. And I think the third is be just you. Okay, so yes, you're a doctor. Yes, you're perhaps going to be the boss, but never forget who's around you. Um, and look, medicine is, is still going to be a, a bloody great specialty. Uh, and it's I can't think of anything I'd want to do. OK, even despite the really long hours, the bad pay, the public press not be, be, being behind us as they were, the pandemic really taking its toll. And it's taking its toll on me mentally, certainly. Um, this is the best job you can ever have. Okay, because when you go to work, if you can't save a life, you can change your life. Uh, And that's what you need to keep in mind is that even if you can't do what you hope to achieve, make sure you do the best for that patient, their relatives, because they remember that um, and their relatives will in particular. And I, I, I always value every family member that thanks me when someone has died, because I know that I've done a good job if if they say thank you so much for what you've done. So that that's all I can advise you is don't worry, enjoy don't worry about your student debt because it'll be paid off one day um, and just appreciate the fantastic family that we've got within medicine because it, it's the best bunch of friends that I've ever had. The way you answered that question reminded me of advice I got when I was applying to medical school and it was only do it if you think you'll be passionate about it because along the way there's so much adversity and when you get overwhelmed it's easy to want to give up but if you remember your why and it's genuine to who you are you're more likely to continue along the path and just ride through the waves yeah that reminisces in a different way that when I was in in uh, school uh, the careers advisor told me not to do medicine because it was quite hard <gasps> um, and I said but that's what I want to do and then then they told me not to do four A levels because you might fail one and I said, OK, I, I like 4A levels and I like music because I like singing and I was lucky I was a very good singer and, and actor. Um, then they told me not to be part, a part of a musical before my finals because I might fail. Um, and I, I remember the day I got my A-level results. Um, it's probably the most arrogant thing I've ever done. I just put my piece of paper in front of them and said, there's your four A's. I'm off to Cardiff Union. I'm going to be a doctor. Thanks for your advice. Um, and... and 
if I'd listened to them, I would have become a teacher like my mum and dad. But I was never going to be a teacher. I wanted to be a doctor because I would have been a terrible teacher, despite being a father of four and a foundation program director. I, I was not destined with the classroom. I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I think that's the thing. You go for your dreams, go for the stars. And despite anyone trying to put you down, which I've had a few times in life, you you just say, no, no, it's OK. I'll be fine. And you keep that goal, even if that goal is tiny compared to what you think it should be. Keep achieving every day and you'll become a brilliant doctor, even if you perhaps don't become a professor or become a manager even, which I'm going to become very shortly. So, yeah. <laughs> and imagine if you didn't pave your own path and you actually listen to them. Where would you be now? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, actually. And, and like I say, I, I'm, I'm not always the most popular amongst my uh, certainly senior managerial colleagues because I'm, I'm quite open and honest. But I hope that what I do every day is very honest when it comes to me. Um, and I hope that, yeah, when I do retire, my colleagues and friends and you guys coming through behind me will think, yeah, he was all right as a person and he was a tidyish doctor. Well, as I said, they already do. So <laughs> I'm sure it will continue that way. And um, do you think you would have done anything differently on your journey to where you are now? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a sad one in many ways. Um I wish I'd enjoyed medical school more. Um, so I was 310, I think, when I was in the old University College of Medicine then. I was the last, last year at UWCM. Uh, I came second out of those. I got both the dean's list for surgery and medicine. But um, like I said, I sacrificed a lot physically and mentally during that period because of my anorexia. So I think that's actually the biggest sacrifice. And I think I look back at it thinking I wish I'd enjoyed myself. Because once you're a doctor, it's rather busy. But uh, apart from that, no, I think I was a little bit arrogant in my first years as a doctor. And I think partly my wife brought me down to earth with that. And I perhaps relaxed and chilled out a bit because I was always fearful about failing uh, and not being good enough. I'm now very comfortable in my own body, personality, etc. And that's perhaps hopefully why I, be, I come across as a an approachable person. Um, so I think that's the biggest tip. Really. Don't take yourself too seriously. Know you're good enough because you're, you've got into medical school, which is the hardest bit. Um, and actually, yeah, look back and enjoy life as well as just medicine. And there will be some who love writing papers at 4 a.m. Um, or respond to emails very angrily at 5 a.m. like I often do. But yeah, remember, it is a job. It is a vocation. But make sure that you enjoy life as well and, and people will look back at you and hopefully think of you as a, as a nice person as well as a good person in terms of their career. And for our closing question, um, but that was a good enough to finish on, but I'm interested to hear what you're going to say for this. What is the best piece of advice you've gotten that has shaped you as a clinician? Perhaps not as a clinician, certainly as hopefully a leader now, is um, never ask anyone to do anything you wouldn't do yourself. I think that's key, especially as a consultant. Never expect your juniors, apart from obviously stuff juniors have to do and we have to do, never ask anyone to do anything you would not be willing to do yourself. And if you're a leader or a consultant, make sure you pick up some of the rubbish jobs to make sure that those behind you have some good jobs to do. I think those are the two big things. On a very practical point, um, if you've had a really rubbish week and you've worked late four days, let your colleagues home early on the Friday 
because uh, they'll value a lot more for it. So those are my very practical tips in terms of, of career. Um, but I think, yeah, w- whatever you want to do in your career and life, don't let anyone say you can't do it. Because if my mom and dad had listened to that when I was a few minutes old and 80 months old, I probably wouldn't have a leg. I would be in a wheelchair. I would never have played cricket for Wales. I'd never have played rugby really badly. And I certainly wouldn't be a doctor today. So those those are my tips for life, really, rather than just medicine. I will definitely take those on board and I'm sure the listeners will too. And that was our last question. So thank you so much for speaking to me, Dr. Samuel. I was going to say Dr. Samuel, but die. I think it was a really great conversation um, and your passion really shone through the entire episode. And I just hope that my colleagues, myself, whenever we graduate, whatever specialty we go into, we're just as passionate as you are. Oh, thank you so much and, and thank you so much for asking me. I, I feel immensely privileged to be able to speak to my future colleagues about why why I became a doctor and hopefully why I've become a, a, a relatively safe consultant <laughs> in South Wales. So thank you. Perfect. Thank you. And there you have it. Another episode of A Doctor's Insight. Thank you so much for listening. I hope it was useful. But please share to your friends and other colleagues so that they can also benefit from the great and insightful conversations we have here. Please also join our mailing list by clicking the link in the description of this episode so that you can be one of the first people to know when a new episode is released. Thank you.